Now, I'm curious, if, if someone walked up to you and asked, hey, what is the theological significance of nakedness in the Bible? How would you respond? Chances are you'd be stunned into silence and shocked by the question. You'd have no response. After all, when was the last time you even thought about something like nakedness in the Bible? Probably never. But what if I told you that there actually is a huge theological significance to nakedness in the Bible? And the same goes for clothes. You might think of clothes as nothing more than a fashion statement or something to wear. But in God's eyes, they're much more. And today, I know, as strange as this sounds, we're going to be studying and uncovering the significance of nakedness and clothing in the Bible. Once you start off, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is the second page, and I know while, while we're turning there, you're probably wondering what's going on, why are we studying this, it sounds a little weird, what happened to the Gospel of Mark? Well, normally we run through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, and we will get back to the Gospel of Mark next Sunday. But let me explain how this topic came about, why we're going to talk about this morning. Last week we were on vacation, we did lots and lots of driving, 1,400 miles, a big loop of California basically, is a good time. Had a lot of time in the car to listen to sermons, which is something I don't get a lot of time to do anymore. And one of the sermons I listened to is by Dr. R.C. Sproul. It actually wasn't a sermon, it was a, a series of these 20-minute classroom lectures. And one of them was all about nakedness in the Bible, the significance of it. And I know it sounds weird. You're thinking, why would you ever study that? What could you learn from that? Was that even a real topic in the Bible? But there actually is a lot to learn there. And as most of you already know, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them naked. But not just naked. They were naked and unashamed, it says in Genesis 2. We read over that detail. We spend more, we pay more attention to the verses that talk about marriage in Genesis 2. But there's some significance to that fact. And in reality, their nakedness was quite significant. As is the fact that after the fall, after they fell into sin, what was the first thing they did? The very first thought they had, the very first action they did was made some clothes. That too is rather significant when you start digging. Maybe something you've not thought about before. Dr. Sproul's lecture was very short, very introductory, but it piqued my interest, something I had not really studied in depth before. So I found myself doing some digging, and what I uncovered was an unexpectedly large theme that runs throughout the whole Bible of nakedness and clothing and how these interact and how we are involved. And believe it or not, there are several important theological truths and encouraging lessons to learn from this thread that runs throughout the Bible. And so basically I figured I would, as an excuse, to study it more, turn it into a sermon, and to share what I've learned as well. And uh, when you're on vacation, it's helpful to do those sorts of things. We'll get back to Mark next Sunday, like I said. You know, it's been said that you don't really know something until you can teach it. So this sermon is basically a reflection of things I was studying and learning on our own vacation and wanted to pass on to you. So that I think that covers that. As we get started, though, in case you're feeling a bit nervous, let me just say everything we'll be talking about will be rated PG, so have no fears, okay? This is just, we want to explore what the Bible has to say about this very neglected theme, maybe something you've never even thought about. And I guarantee that you will be surprised to learn just how much there is about nakedness and clothing in the Bible and how important it is. And with all that being said, now we can just get started in Genesis chapter 2. I want to take us back to see how it all began. Today, nakedness, it's taboo. It's even a crime. You can't just go running around naked. You'll get arrested, thankfully. But it wasn't always that way. Genesis chapter 2 recaps the last day of God's creation, the sixth day before he rested. And on that day, he created man. And unlike all of the animals, God created man and woman in his image. They were like him in that way. In some way, they were the pinnacle of his creation. But like the animals, God created Adam and Eve naked. And we know that animals don't wear clothes. The only exception is people who have too much time on their hands and dress their chihuahua in a sweater. But normally, animals are not supposed to wear clothes. And humans were invented the same way. Genesis 2.24, we'll start there. It's a very familiar verse. It's read at all the weddings. We all know that verse. 
dealing with that, the marriage union, setting the pattern. Verse 24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we could spend forever talking about that. But notice there's another verse in chapter 2 that often gets skipped, especially at weddings. But it's this final verse. It receives less attention. We want to look at it now, verse 25. It's the summing up the chapter and transitioning to chapter 3 as well. And it just says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And what is this final verse telling us? And we learn the little detail. Okay, they were naked. They were created naked. But is this just some background information? Like a cloud and a landscape painting? It's just there, just telling us some information. This verse is telling us something more. You have to notice that the subtle little commentary put in there because it doesn't just say they were naked. It says they were naked and what? Not ashamed. And that's telling us something because ordinarily today people are naked and ashamed. Something has changed. Something was different about creation, about their state. They were naked, but they weren't ashamed. It wasn't a, a, a shameful thing. And just for a little, let's talk about this Hebrew concept and the word of shame. You see it today in a lot of Asian cultures, this strong sense of shame. They take it very seriously. The shame, it's partly an inner feeling of guilt for doing something wrong, but there's also a significant outer aspect to it. It's, It's akin to being publicly humiliated. The idea is that when you do something wrong, not only are you going to feel really bad about it on the inside, but outwardly you're going to be made publicly disgraced over what you have done. It's an inner and outer thing. It's a big deal, especially to the Hebrews. And they considered it to be a very shameful thing. It wasn't until later in history with the Greeks and the Romans that nudity became celebrated. That's why when they're doing these archaeological digs, they find these ancient frescoes or statues for the Greek and Romans. Everyone's naked because they celebrated nudity and they actually worshipped in a way the human body. In fact, the original Olympics were designed as a way to showcase the human body. And so in in ancient Greece, the Olympics, the athletes all competed naked originally. I'm sure if that were the case today, there would be a lot less tryouts. But the Hebrews participated in no such celebration over the naked human body. Nor would they respect the supposedly enlightened morals of the Greeks or people today. They frowned upon nudity. It was a shameful thing. Nudity was associated with shame and guilt. If you were naked, especially in public, you were doing something wrong. Something was wrong with you and you were doing something wrong. But that's what makes this little detail in Genesis 2 so striking. It's the fact that we learn Adam and Eve, they they were living life naked, but they weren't ashamed. There, There was no shame present, no guilt attached to their nudity. We read this today, it just sounds so strange. That's not right. That's not normal. It shouldn't be that way. But for them, it, it was right. It was normal. They weren't doing anything wrong. Genesis 2 especially is telling us about life before the fall. This is the final day of creation. And after this, after he creates Adam and Eve, what does God say? He looks upon all of his creation, which includes naked Adam and Eve, And he says, not just good, it's very good. He doesn't stop to make them clothes first before he says that. They are good the way he created them. They had no reason to be ashamed because they were innocent. It's like parents with a newborn child. That baby pops out and they're naked. But it's not a shameful thing because that child is so pure and innocent. God is like Adam and Eve's father, and he knows what they look like naked. He built them. He designed them. There's just nothing shameful about it. They're innocent, and he's their heavenly father. And so from the end of chapter 2, we learn that nakedness originally, there's nothing shameful about it. God's intended design, it was not a shameful thing or a guilty thing. Much like children today, where that sense of innocence is retained, they were like God's children It was a reflection of their innocence and purity before God the Father. But today, though, that's not the case. We know that. Nudity is certainly not the case. It is a shameful thing in our world today. 
So we wonder, well, what, what happened? What changed? If this is how it started, this is how God created man and woman, why is that not the case today? Why are we all wearing clothes? And thank you for wearing clothes this morning, by the way. Why are we all wearing clothes today? What changed? And the answer is, well, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 happened, and that's what changed. As we enter into chapter 3, we're introduced to Satan, who takes possession of this snake. And then you know the story. We're not going to labor it too much. Satan tempts Eve, and he tells her, you know, if you, if you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not really going to die. In fact, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll see right and wrong. It'll be great. Let's just look at verse 5. We'll just look at one verse here. He says to her, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's telling her, look, you want to do this. This is good for you. It's going to taste good. It's going to be beneficial. You you want this fruit. And you're not really going to die. We We know the story. It's the temptation. He lays it out for her. And Eve bites. First, figuratively. And then, literally. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Again, we could spend a lot of time in these two verses detailing the fall. We've done that other times, but... For now, we're most interested in what happens after this. So this is the fall. Okay, they disobeyed. They ate from that forbidden fruit. What happens next? What's the very first thing that happens right after this fall into sin? Look at the next verse, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is very interesting. Adam and Eve, they didn't really need to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to know good and evil. They already knew good and evil in an intellectual sense. What's good? God is good. His creation is good. What's evil? Disobeying God is evil. Eating of that tree is evil. That's all they needed to know. They knew right from wrong. That In an intellectual sense, just leave it there. But when they Once they ate from that fruit, they learned good and evil in an experiential sense. They became evil before God because they disobeyed him. And that's what we call sin. Sin is just disobeying God, and that's what they did. But look at this. How was their newfound evil understood? First and foremost, they recognized their evil in the form of their nakedness. Their first response to their new sin was not, hey, we just, we just sinned against God. We just disobeyed God. What are we going to do? No, that wasn't their first response. Their first response was, hey, we're naked. How come no one ever told us this? We've been running around naked the whole time. It's so embarrassing. And so what was their first action after sin? It wasn't repentance or remorse. It was, let me find some clothes. They fashioned some fig leaves together and made the first pair of underwear. The first thing they did. Now, why would they do this? What, what really changed now that they ate from the fruit? It's not like the animals all of a sudden were going to start caring that they were naked. It's not like they could really hide their nakedness from God. He just created them that way. What changed? Well, what really changed was their shame. Now, all of a sudden, because they disobeyed, they were naked but ashamed. They were starting to experience the consequences of sin, all sin. And the first consequence is always the same. It's shame. They had done wrong and they were feeling the, the disgrace that comes from doing wrong. First comes shame. That, that's true for sin today. First comes shame. Then, secondly comes guilt. The second consequence is found in verse 8. Look there now. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's a little bit of mystery here, but in some way, shape, or form, God manifested himself in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and he fellowshiped with his creation, which is an amazing thing to think about. But on this day, they heard God coming, and so what did they do? 
Just quick, we've got to hide. It's just ridiculous, though. Where are you going to go to hide from God? What, what tree is big enough to shield you from God's eyes? But this is just another consequence of sin. Sin produces guilt. They felt guilty. They knew they had done wrong. And like little kids who they know they've done wrong, they don't want to get caught, so they run, they hide. They try and cover it up. Adam and Eve had no way of dealing with the guilt. They, they felt it, but they didn't know how to deal with it, what to do about it, so they just ran. It's the same today. It's really setting the pattern for all sin. People sin, they feel the guilt, they don't know how to deal with it, they try and run, they try and hide. It's really no use, though. Can you hide your sin from God? Can you escape his notice, the things you've done? You have no chance. And neither did Adam or Eve. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. He says, so I hid myself. And God, of course, he knew where they were. I think we know this. He, he was watching Satan tempt Eve. This was part of his plan. This, God was not asleep in the job while Satan was tempting Eve. He knew it was happening. He watched Eve take that fruit. And he watched them make that clothes, and then he watched them run and hide. He knew what was going on. He knew where they were. But he gives them a chance to repent. But instead, they're overcome by the third consequence of sin. You find shame, you find guilt, then you find fear. They understood the fear that came with their sin. You know you've done wrong. You feel the shame, the disgrace over what you've done. You know you're guilty, but you can't do anything about it, so you just fear punishment. You fear what's going to happen next. Well, what's going to happen to me? You're afraid. Already we've seen God's perfect world, his perfect creation marred by sin. In the garden, originally, they had no reason to fear. I mean, a, a lion could walk through. They had nothing to fear. God's creation was perfect. But now they're completely lost and consumed by fear. Everything is falling down. It's all falling apart. We call this the fall. There's so much we could pause here, and there's so much we could learn from this fall, this fall into sin, this first sin. This first sin really does set the pattern for all sin, even today. What is sin? It's disobeying God. No different. You disobey God, you have sinned. And when you do that, what happens? Well, you're going to find the same consequences. Shame, guilt, fear. What are you going to do about it? Well, you can try and run and hide. You can try and cover it yourself, but it's not going to work. God sees right through it, and he must judge. He sees your sin and he has to judge. I think these are important truths. We know them. We could, like I said, spend a lot of time on them. But I want you to think about this. Do you see in all this how the consequences of their first sin were expressed? That the shame, the guilt, the fear, they were all attached to their nakedness. They sinned. But all the consequences of that sin were attached to their physical nakedness. It's like their nakedness instantly became a picture of their sin. Why was Adam ashamed? Because he sinned? Well, yeah, but directly he says it's because he was naked. Why was he so guilty? Why was, why was he fearful? Why did he hide? He says in verse 10, what are his words? He said, I was afraid because I was Naked. And that's why he hid. Did you see the connection? Their sin against the Lord and its lasting consequences in that moment became identified with their nakedness. In the fall, nakedness became the first outward picture of our inward problem. Adam and Eve's real problem with the Lord, it wasn't their nakedness. That's not their problem, right? He created them that way. Their real problem was their sin. Yet their nakedness proved a fitting picture of their sin problem because now both their sin and their nakedness came with guilt and shame and fear. And whether it's sin or nakedness, you can try and cover it up yourself. You can try and hide, 
from the Lord, but it's no use. He sees, he knows, and he has to bring all into account. So just to, to recap, what we find is that in this fall, in this original sin, nakedness became like a living parable, a living picture from here on out, like a symbol of our inner spiritual condition. Before God, we're all naked. Spiritually, we're naked before Him before, because of our sin. And that brings shame and guilt and fear. And what are you going to do about it? You can try and cover it or hide, but it's no use. He sees and He will bring into an account. This is how, though, this is how it began. This is how nakedness became tied to sin and shame. It didn't start that way. We saw that, Genesis 2. There's nothing shameful about their nakedness. What changed? This is what changed. And it's important how you, that you see how it all starts because this helps you make sense of, of nakedness throughout the Bible and nakedness today. People down through the ages have always been ashamed of nakedness. Some try and overcome it, like nudists and nudist colonies. Wrongly so. Because actually now our shame is on purpose attached to our guilt from sin. Our nakedness is now, after the fall, a built-in effect of our fallen nature. It's a consequence of our original sin. That's why you're ashamed when you're naked. It's because of what happened at the fall that we've all had that dream where you're in class or you're in school or in work and somehow you're naked and you've got to run, you've got to hide, you've got to cover yourself up. It's because of what happened at the fall that we're all bashful and timid to undress even in front of a doctor, let alone in public. It's because of what happened at the fall that we even feel the need to put underwear on animated characters to make them more modest. Have you ever thought, why does Mickey Mouse wear shorts? He's a mouse. But every, like every animated character, we have to make them modest, even though they're animals. It's just we're ashamed of nudity. And that's now proper after the fall, because it is shameful now. Nakedness has been tied to our spiritual shame and guilt and fear before the Lord over sin. It started in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and then it just gets played out throughout Scripture. A few examples, Genesis 9, you probably remember what happened right after the flood. Noah planted a vineyard, and a little little time later, what happened? He got drunk. Noah was almost like a second Adam, and here's Noah's fall. He falls into sin, he gets drunk, and in his drunkenness, what does he do? He uncovers himself in his tent. He's naked, rolling around naked in his tent, drunk, and his son Ham finds him. And he exposes his father's nakedness. He makes fun of him. He lampoons him. He makes sport of his father's shame. He adds to his father's shame. Noah's other two sons, though, what do they do? They refuse to look upon their father's shame. So they take some clothes, put on their shoulders. They walk backwards. They cover their father's shame. And when Noah sobers up, he, as a result of all this, he, he blesses his two sons for dealing with him in an honorable manner, but he curses Ham for his actions. And look, we're not going to study this, but there's really there's no hints that Ham did anything sexually immoral with Noah. That's not the case. But hopefully now you can see it's bad enough. It's enough of an offense for Ham to uncover and lampoon his father's shame. That was a big deal. That's how seriously nakedness was tied to shame, especially among the Hebrews. And this was a serious offense to uncover the shame of another. One of the worst things that could happen to you is for your nakedness to be uncovered. You see a lot of this in God's law, prohibitions against uncovering the nakedness or the shame of another. God himself later picks up on this theme in Ezekiel chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Ezekiel 16, the whole chapter retells Israel's history and it pictures Israel like a child, like a newborn infant. And as a newborn, they were naked, they were bare, but they were thrown out into a field left to die. No one wanted Israel, but God, he came, he saw Israel, he felt compassion for her, so he rescued her. 
That's a picture of that, Ezekiel 16 builds. God raised her up. And then in verse 8, it says, He clothed her nakedness. God Himself using nakedness metaphorically for her shame. God even married Israel, so to speak. He entered this entered into a redemptive covenant with Israel, the nation. In this chapter, God himself uses nakedness as a metaphor of Israel's spiritual bankruptcy, but then he gives her some clothes. He clothes her, and as he does so, he redeems her. God provided a covering for her nakedness, and he took away her shame. But as time went on in Israel's history, what did the nation do? She went astray from her husband, so to speak. She, the chapter says over and over, she played the harlot. She committed spiritual adultery against God. And so God judged her. But notice, how does God express his judgment toward Israel? In the same chapter later on, if you're there, you can look at verse 38 of Ezekiel 16. Because of her spiritual adultery, God says, verse 38, Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood or judged. And I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Verse 39, I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and leave you naked and bare. And what we find is that just as God's redemption is pictured as him clothing Israel. So now his judgment is pictured as what? Taking the clothes away, leaving them naked and bare. Israel rejected God's covering. God covered her shame and her guilt from sin. but They rejected that covering. And God left the nation to her ways and brought them judgment for their sins. The same pattern is all throughout Scripture. We see it again and again. Nakedness takes on the form of judgment. It becomes an expression of judgment because your sin is left uncovered before God. And we find the principle reiterated that, once again, nakedness, it's tied to our spiritual sin and our shame, and we need it covered. We don't want to just be naked anymore. We need clothes, physical and spiritual. Someone's got to cover our shame. Individually, That's true for all of us today. Physically, you need clothes. Spiritually, you need some clothes. Someone to cover your sin, your guilt, your shame. But we also learn that this is something only God can provide. You can't cover yourself. Only God can cover you. If you're still in Genesis 3, or if not, go back there one more time. There's one more verse we didn't look at in Genesis chapter 3 on the fall that I want you to see. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 now. Which I think back to the fall one more time. After Adam and Eve sinned, how did God respond? He judged them. He cursed Adam. He cursed Eve. He cursed the serpent. He cursed Satan. He even cursed the earth. Everyone is held accountable and judged. Now, because of their rebellion, all humanity would be separated from God, spiritually dead, and in time they would know physical death as well. But in all this judgment, was there any hope of redemption? Did God God give them any hope of forgiveness or restoration at all? The answer is yes. Of course, in verse 15, he gave them this promise of a seed who would overcome Satan. That's a key verse. We're not going to spend time on that now, but it's a key promise of who would become the Christ. But God also gave Adam and Eve and all of humanity a ray of hope of redemption through his actions. We find this little peculiar verse here. After the fall, after the judgment, he's already cursed everything, but what is the first thing God does after cursing Adam and Eve and everything? What's his first action after rendering this judgment? Do you know what? It's in verse 21. Right after all this, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Now, you probably knew this, but have you ever wondered, why did why'd God do that? Why did he do that? Why not leave them in their nakedness and shame? 
It's what they deserved. They sinned. They deserved to be left in their nakedness and shame, right? Why not leave them? Or why not leave them in their fig leaves? Because technically they weren't naked anymore. Remember, they had already made some underwear. So why did God feel the need to get rid of their fig leaf underwear and give them some nice new fur underwear? Maybe it's because God knew that their leaf underwear wasn't going to last. It's going to, you know, pretty soon those leaves are going to dry out. And then they're going to break apart and there goes your underwear. So how would you like it if every few days your underwear disintegrated and you had to make a new pair? You'd not be very happy about that. So maybe God's just being nice and just giving them something comfortable and lasting, some like fur, some fox fur underwear, something like that. But I don't think so. I think we know enough about God from Scripture to understand that he's concerned with more than just their fashion and their comfort. Everything God does is deliberate and purposeful, his actions. This is no exception. Instead, I think it's safe to see here in this physical clothing another picture of what God would do for them spiritually. He's doing this to teach. Just as we've established their nakedness became a picture of their sin and shame before God, so his clothing them became a picture of the path to redemption. Their fig leaves, their covering, their efforts were not enough. They were not sufficient. They tried to cover their own shame. Can't do it. It's not going to work. Insufficient. What they have just done by sinning can never be covered before the Lord because he sees everything and he has to judge. But in grace and in mercy, he can provide them a covering that will deal with their sin and their shame. And that's what he did. That's what he was showing them. He can provide a covering for your sin. And we also learn that this covering must come through sacrifice. Death is the cost to cover shame. Someone's got to pay the price with their life. And if it's not going to be their death, which they deserved, they deserve to die physically as well right there. But if it's not going to be their death, Death, it must be the death of another. That is the only solution to our sin and our shame problem. So that's what God did. He covered their physical shame through a substitute sacrifice. Some innocent animal, some part of God's perfect creation, lost its life in order to cover their shame, their sin, their shame covered. And you can probably already guess, this sets the pattern for all redemption. Not only did their actions set the pattern for all sin, but God's first action sets the pattern for all redemption. Already, hopefully this gives you a new outlook on clothes. There is no glory trying to reclaim what Adam and Eve had by becoming a nudist. That's not what you should try and do. Part of our fallen nature comes with built-in shame over nakedness. But there is glory in clothing. They cover our shame, and more than that, God has made clothes a divinely inspired, lasting picture of what it takes for our spiritual shame to be dealt with as well. God has to spiritually give you some clothes and cover your shame. And this must come through a sacrifice. This is where we learn about, of course, Jesus. We can fast forward the story now. We don't have time to cover everything in Scripture. This is where Jesus comes into the, pi- the picture when we talk fulfillment. You probably know Jesus. He fulfills those words of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is the promised seed who crushes the serpent's head. But in addition, Jesus also fulfills for us this redemption that's pictured by clothing. He's the animal that was killed to cover our shame. He is the sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered to make a covering for our sin and shame. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, familiar verses, talking about his substitution that says, Surely Christ, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, 
by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is a key verse on substitution. He was our substitute sacrifice. And we know what was foreseen in Isaiah was fulfilled by Jesus, the Christ. He was a suffering servant who gave his life for guilty sinners. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says that Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We ask the question often, how can a person be saved? How can someone get to heaven? We've got this sin problem standing in the way. It comes with guilt. It comes with shame. God has to judge. So what do we do? You can try and run. You can try and hide or cover your own shame and guilt, but it's, it's really no use. God sees right through your efforts. It doesn't actually pay for your sin. You can try and be a good person. You can try and do good things. But being a moral person, being a nice person, doesn't pay for what you've done. It doesn't actually make an atonement or a, a pen, a pay the penalty for your sin. And what we learn time and time again in Scripture is that if you're left just to yourself, there's nothing you can do. You can't get to heaven. You can't be saved by yourself. You have no hope. But God can do something for you. He can redeem you. And that's the only way to heaven. It's through His mercy. He must act upon you. We saw, lived, we saw this lived out in the Garden of Eden. The only path to salvation is through substitute sacrifice. Someone takes your place, takes your penalty. And that someone is Jesus. He's the only one who can take your place and pay the penalty for your sin. And that's what he did on the cross. I trust and I hope that this is something you all already know and have come to trust in. If not, then you yourself need to turn to Jesus in faith right now for your forgiveness, to stand in your place. But all this being said, I want to add one more layer of understanding too to Christ and what his work entailed on the cross. We know that in his atonement, he paid the penalty for sin, right? He also covered our shame. Did he not? The question is, how did he do that? Why don't you turn to John chapter 19. There's a couple more passages, but John chapter 19 here. I want to challenge you on some things, and I want to perhaps tell you something that you may find hard to accept at first. You all remember the crucifixion. This is where the penalty of sin was paid for. Lots of people have died on crosses, but Jesus was unique because he was the Son of God. And he not only physically suffered, but he spiritually bore the weight of God's wrath toward our sin on the cross. That's what paid the penalty. And in so doing, in hanging on that cross, physically and spiritually, he was bearing our sin and bearing our shame. But do you remember, right before Jesus was crucified, what did the soldiers do? Right before, they took his clothes. Look at verse 23, John 19. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now what they're doing here is common practice. The soldiers involved in the crucifixion, they would take the criminal's clothes as like a bonus. It's like your paycheck bonus. You get, you get what the guy's wearing. And there were four soldiers, so they took his outer garments, they split them up amongst themselves. Maybe one guy got the outer coat, the belt, the sandals, the head covering, whatever. They took his outer clothes, and they had one apiece. But then there was this thing called a tunic. This word, it refers to an undergarment. It's what you wear next to your skin. Think of like ancient long underwear, but without the sleeves. That's what it was. They didn't have our normal underwear today. So this was like an underwear and undershirt in one piece. 
And Jesus had a very nice pair. It says it was seamlessly woven into one piece. This was a nice undergarment, which is what they all wore. The soldiers, they even recognized how nice it was. And they're like, we can't really divide this up. What, what use is half a pair of underwear? So let's just cast lots and someone will take the whole thing for this final piece of clothing. So that's what they did. It's like drawing straws or rolling dice. They randomly determined who was going to get it. And one soldier took the whole thing home. He took the entire tunic or undergarment. Now, first and foremost, this is a stunning fulfillment of prophecy because this was all foreseen in Psalm 22. But here's what I want to point out. After the soldiers took the outer garments of Jesus, and then they took the inner garment of Jesus, what was left? What clothing remained on Jesus? And the answer is nothing. Jesus was naked. Jesus was crucified naked. Now, we can't be absolutely dogmatic here because there's the tiniest of chances that they provided Jesus a little loincloth for modesty. But this is where I want to challenge you. Some of you, you heard that, you're like, I don't think so, that can't be. I want to challenge you because nothing in the text says anywhere that he was actually clothed on the cross. To the contrary, we have two verses telling us that all of his clothes, the outer garments and their underwear, were taken from him. And furthermore, what was the normal Roman practice of crucifixion? It was to almost always crucify criminals naked. Crucifixion was invented and designed to publicly shame and humiliate the criminal. Not only were you beaten up, made to carry your cross, but then you were hung there naked for all the world to see. People would come, they would pass by, they would scorn you, ridicule you, make fun of you, whole nine yards. And just think, you're hanging there completely exposed. And your instinct is to try and cover yourself, but you can't because your hands are nailed or tied to this cross. And talk about utter shame and humiliation. That's why they invented the cross. Now, some people, they just can't believe that Jesus was crucified naked. It just doesn't seem right. And, you know, besides, there are all those paintings with Jesus on the cross, and he always has a little loincloth on, right? I hope you understand that those medieval paintings, they didn't know what Jesus looked like, let alone what he was wearing. And they added that loincloth for the sake of modesty because we're ashamed of nakedness. But nothing in Scripture or tradition suggests he was wearing anything or that the Romans made some special exception for Jesus and the two thieves. They didn't think these guys were special. They were just criminals. And the real issue is that most people just they can't stand the thought of Jesus being naked on the cross because it's just it's too shameful. It's too inappropriate. It just can't be. But again, I, I have to challenge that thinking. On the one hand, you're right. It is inappropriate. But so is the fact that the Son of God would die on a cross as a criminal. The whole thing is inappropriate. The whole thing is shameful. But that's really the whole point. Like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For his glory and our good, Jesus endured the cross, and it says he despised the shame. He did it for him, his glory. He did it for our good. And that included nakedness. So on the one hand, yes, Jesus dying naked on the cross. It sounds very inappropriate. It is. But that's, that's kind of the point. The whole thing was inappropriate, shameful, wrong. But he suffered wrong for us so that we don't have to. On the other hand, though, we can also argue that Jesus dying naked, it's actually quite appropriate. What do I mean by that? Well, here I would call upon the picture of redemption we found from Adam's nakedness and God clothing Adam, which we've already learned about. Remember, after Adam sinned, what happened? Well, he started to bear the consequences of his sin, the shame, the guilt, the fear. And all of these, though, they were physically tied to his nakedness. He had a spiritual problem, but he had a physical problem as well. And as we learn, nakedness became the first picture of man's spiritual condition. Adam tried to cover himself, but it was no use. God cursed him, but God also showed mercy, and God covered 
his nakedness with a sacrifice. All of this comes to play in fulfillment with Jesus. Who is Jesus? One answer to that question in Romans 5 is, he's the second Adam. And he came to redeem those from Adam's race. And to do this, he had to be man's substitute. Which means that our sin became like his sin. And our shame became like his shame. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That, that's Jesus. Jesus assumed the position of sinful man on the cross. That included his spiritual shame. That included his physical shame. Jesus was bearing everything for us. Adam and all of us deserve to die naked and ashamed for our sins. But Jesus took that death and shame on himself so we wouldn't have to. It's the whole point. And when you understand the nakedness of Jesus on the cross, almost almost certainly being the case, we can build some more comparisons and contrasts between Jesus and Adam, the first Adam, the second Adam. The first Adam was naked, but due to sin had to be clothed. The second Adam was clothed, but due to sin, our sin had to be naked. The first Adam brought death at the tree of life. The second Adam brought life at the tree of death. And as the early church liked to point out, Jesus, even Jesus came into the world naked and left the world naked. In birth, he was found naked in a cave with a man named Joseph and then covered with a cloth. In death, he was found naked in a cave with another man named Joseph and then covered with a cloth. This is what he did. All of this is what he did for us, though. The point is, he did this in our place. Our sin, our shame, paid for by him. And so what we have in Jesus is our long-awaited redemption. He died in our place. But as the last piece to this whole puzzle, to access this redemption for you to be forgiven, what must you do? God says, you must know this and you must believe. You must trust in Jesus to be your substitute. We have a word for this. It's called faith. You must place your faith in him to redeem you. But I also want to point out just quickly here that this faith in Jesus to receive eternal life, it's also expressed in another way. In several passages, faith in Jesus is synonymous with clothing. You want to be saved? You must wear Jesus. You've got to put on Christ. You must be clothed with him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Romans 13, 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And this really brings full circle the picture of nakedness and shame, which is covered. Not only is Jesus our substitute for sin, but he is also our new clothing. He's our clothes. You have to wear him. He is our God-provided covering. If you wear him through faith, your sin will be forgiven. Your shame will be removed. This is the path, the only path to reconciliation with God. Everything God acted out in the garden, which all happened, we find fulfilled in Christ. He is that lamb slain to pay for your sin, but also to cover your shame spiritually as well. So the lesson, of course, is to put on Christ by faith. You must wear him, which means in faith you're trusting him, you're living for him, you you follow him. And if you do this, He will turn around and he will clothe you in white. Just as one final observation to make in this little study on nakedness and clothing in the Bible. If you turn to the book of Revelation, if you want, you can turn to Revelation 7. We get a glimpse of life in heaven. And when when you think about heaven, you might think that God in restoring humanity, he might have us all back to being naked and unashamed. Right? That's how we started. And after God redeems us, we're probably going to go back to being naked and unashamed, right? 
You might think that, but every glimpse we get into heaven, we find that everyone is wearing clothes. Everyone wears clothes in heaven. And what are they wearing? Or Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And later it says, These are the ones who have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see this? This is just one example. Every example, people are wearing white robes. And there's no doubt that these white robes signify our righteousness and they will serve as an everlasting reminder of the price paid for our redemption. Christ took our shame. He even bore our nakedness. And in return, we're clothed with him. We're clothed with his righteousness. And these white robes will forever remind us of that. And to this we say, to God be the glory forever and ever for what he has done for us. So just in all this morning, I hope this little study has opened your eyes to a biblical theme you probably never thought about before. Nakedness and clothing in the Bible. But hopefully now, even as you get dressed, every morning you can think of your clothes in a different light. Not only do do they provide you a little bit of comfort, protection, even some fashion, but since the beginning, your clothes have been designed to serve as a picture of what you need before God, spiritually speaking, and what God has already provided in Christ. So the next time you get dressed, every day you get dressed, you have that chance to remember him and to thank Christ for coming, for dying, for taking your sin, for covering your shame, and for clothing you forever in him. We thank God for this. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed stop to thank you for dealing with our sin. It is our real problem. Indeed, we too sense the shame of our nakedness, our physical bodies, but that's not our real problem. It's merely an after effect of the fall. Before you, Lord, our sin is what separates us, and we all have it. We all have a massive debt of sin that we cannot pay or repay. We cannot cover. We cannot hide. There's nothing we can do. We were lost and naked and ashamed. But we so thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came and died and took our spiritual shame and our physical as well. He bore it all on the cross for us that now by believing in him, by wearing him, putting him on, we can be redeemed. He can stand in our place. I pray if anyone has not turned to him that they do so now, that they place their faith in Christ as their substitute, sacrifice their Savior, and he will take away their shame as well. We rejoice in what you have done for us, even at this otherwise strange subject, but Lord, still redemptive and encouraging how you have clothed us all. And we look forward to the time when we are with you in heaven, forever clothed in white, remembering the Savior who paid the ultimate price for us. We just thank you so much. May we live in a way honoring to you as a reflection of our gratitude. Thank you again, Lord, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.